The Scooby-Doo's and Don't The Scooby-Doo's and Don't The Scooby-Doo's and Don't The Scooby-Doo's and Don't Kiro Jinkies Junkies And welcome to Scooby-Doo's and Don'ts The Scooby-Doo themed podcast <laughs> that absolutely nobody asked for And yet you're all getting it whether you like it or not My name's Trish And I'm Siobhan And if you can't tell us apart by now, that's your problem not ours. <laughs> but I did just remind Shib to go put the cowboy hat on. Yeah, I don't have a choice at this point, but I am wearing a hat, just so you know. So I think we should start by acknowledging that CoStar specifically said that I should not be going to any friends' houses this week. But here I am. Yeah, and I consider us to be friends. <laughs> yeah, I hope you do as well. <laughs> well, at this point, I think, yes. <laughs> so the universe really was conspiring against us this week. However, we've pushed through, and this week's movie is Scooby-Doo, The Curse of the Lake Monster. Ooh. The sequel to, well, I should say hotly anticipated sequel, but yeah. it really wasn't. <laughs> I don't think anyone asked for this film. So, the moderately anticipated sequel to Scooby-Doo, The Mystery Begins, which we right. reviewed as our first episode. So this is really the movie that started it all, isn't it, Shib? It really is. So we watched this together for the first time about three years ago, and we didn't know each other particularly well at the time. No, yeah, like, she was my friend's flatmate. That's correct. <laughs> and then we re-watched it. Yeah, about two years ago when I was going through a breakup, Trish came over, we watched Scooby-Doo, The Curse of the Lake Monster, drank a bottle of wine, and talked about how funny it would be if we made a podcast, and then continued to talk about making that podcast for the next two years. And then here we are, manifesting our reality, <laughs> two years later. So I think that we can start off with a summary of the arduous journey it has been to record mm -hmm. this particular episode. Yeah, it's been really difficult. <laughs> We are actually recording on the same day that we're releasing the episode because it has been such a journey to get here. Exactly. So normally what we do is we record Sunday and we watch the movie, write down our thoughts, and then mm -hmm. record all on the same day. But that just simply has not been possible with this particular film. No. We ended up watching it yesterday, which was Wednesday, and... We were so emotionally drained by the film that we could not record yesterday. So we're here again, take two, trying to get our thoughts down. We also kept falling asleep throughout yeah. the film, even though we were watching it in the middle of the day. Like, <laughs> it's genuinely, like, I feel like this film is an energy vampire. It really is. I wish I had known that at the beginning of this year when I suffered from such bad insomnia that I was prescribed sleeping pills, but I feel like this could have completely avoided that problem. Yeah, exactly. So I think the first thing we need to get out of the way is that if you are looking for something to help you fall asleep, look no further. The Curse of the Lake Monster has got your back. Precisely. So we've rewatched the second half of the movie today mm -hmm. because neither of us could really truly recall what was going on, even though we've now seen the movie four times yeah. at least. Now we can give you a full summary of the film because we're confident that we have milked everything we could get <laughs> out of this. So the official summary for the movie is when Scooby and the gang find summer jobs at a farm belonging a farm. 
It's not it's a farm. It's not a farm. This, this summary is inaccurate. But anyway, they run into a legendary lake monster. Can Scooby and the gang get to the bottom of this mystery? First of all, I just want to touch on the fact that they say Scooby and the gang get summer jobs. Scooby is a dog. Scooby <laughs> is not a legal person and therefore cannot work. So the first thing off the bat is I want to question this country club's hiring practices. Yeah. Another thing is that it is a country club and not a farm. So even the summary doesn't know what's going on in this movie. But basically what happens is the Scooby gang gets jobs at this country club owned by Daphne's uncle. And on the first night there, all of the guests are attacked by this giant frog monster with terrifying big teeth. A lot of people quit their country club memberships and the Scooby gang are kind of hired to investigate where this is coming from. So they ask around some locals and there is this old myth of this witch that lives on the shore of the lake who is collecting moonstones to get revenge on settlers who stole her land, which we will touch on later. <laughs> this film is less about the actual curse of the lake monster. And again, it's never really touched on why it's a curse as opposed <laughs> to just a myth. The true axis on which the film turns is the relationships within the gang itself. At the start of the film, we find out that Daphne and Fred have been secretly dating to the rest of the gang's abject horror. <laughs> and Shaggy develops a crippling crush on Velma after he falls off the top of the mystery van and Velma romantically catches Shaggy in her arms. She is so strong from carrying this entire film. And franchise on her back. <laughs> On top of that, Scooby is having to now deal with the fact that he is no longer the central figure in Shaggy's life. Yeah, so to call it a character study would not do it justice. However, it is not really a plot-focused movie. No, absolutely not. What happens is, as the gang is going around and trying to investigate what this lake monster could be and who could be behind it, they keep running into odd little problems which suggest that they are perhaps being undermined by someone close to them. So, spoiler warning for this next part, <laughs> but it turns out that Velma has been possessed by the spirit of this lake witch and she is the one behind the frog monsters so she is getting her revenge for her being burned at the stake all those years ago yes and the gang only really finds out about what's going on from reliance on the town people solving the mystery for them however at the end of the film they manage to rescue Velma from the clutches of the evil lake witch turn the frogs back into ordinary frogs again and ensure that the witch's staff is broken so that she can no longer terrorize the lake town. Now, you may have picked up from this summary that this is again a Scooby film where the monster is actually real. Yes. It's also another film where Scooby himself is not relevant to the plot whatsoever, which you may have also picked up from the summary. Yes. The only thing that Scooby does which is of any relevance to the film itself is that he sabotages Shaggy's first date with Velma and he breaks the witch's staff at the end because the witch has telekinesis which is so slow and so bad <laughs> that Scooby is literally able to steal the staff out of midair while the witch is filling it towards her and smash it on the rocks below. Also the moonstones which are required to make the staff work are very haphazardly hidden around the town. So the witch needs to collect them all to make her staff work again, which is I think the plot of the movie. We're not sure. It's very unclear. It's all over the place. Much like Daphne and Fred's relationship. Oof. <laughs> situationships, I situationship, think, is I think accurate. is more accurate. They do flip-flop around that quite a bit, though. Like, they'll change their definition of their relationship every few minutes. Yeah, so just as kind of like general first impressions of the film, 
I think that this is a terrible movie. <laughs> I agree. And yet I enjoyed it more than the first one. This film made me feel something. And that feeling was sleepiness, confusion, and rage. Exactly. And I would much rather be feeling sleepiness, confusion, and rage than just the complete apathy I felt towards the first film. Exactly. And what really bothers me here is that I think that this film, much like Death and Velma, which we discussed last week, really toes the line on what is meant to be a Scooby film. The monster is real, for one, which I take deep issue with. And it's not even technically the gang that solved the mystery. No. The townspeople kind of knew all along that the witch was going to possess someone mm -hmm. and just didn't really seem to care. <laughs> I think as well, another issue in this film is that the gang are solving the mystery in order to save their jobs at the mm -hmm. country club. Like, they're not really doing it for the good of other people. They're just doing it to further the wealth gathering of Daphne's uncle, whose name is Thornton Blake the Fifth. That's a very bougie name. It is a really bougie name. You know what else is not a bougie name? No. Daphne. <laughs> So I think as well, one of the issues that I take with this film is that, like Shib said, it's kind of more like a character study than a plot device, but the characters are, for the most part, pretty horrible people. They are, and to be honest, only Fred and Daphne are really centrally examined. I think Velma is sidelined for much of the movie because obviously she's the villain, and Shaggy and Scooby might as well not be there at all for all of the development that they get. And I think Daphne and Fred's relationship is a pretty terrible example of how you should be treating someone who you supposedly really like and are very good friends with that you've chosen to enter a relationship with. So there's zero communication between Absolutely the two of them. Absolutely none. They're both on completely different pages. So Daphne thinks that Fred and her are boyfriend-girlfriend and that they are together. Whereas Fred tells Shaggy multiple times that he sees this as just a very loosey-goosey <laughs> situation. Yeah. Yeah, he says they're just hanging out. And that they're not together and that Daphne is not his girlfriend. Right off the bat, this sets off alarm bells for me because you should always be on the same terms as someone when you're entering yeah. into a relationship, especially when you're both part of an established friend group. Exactly. And I think as well that the two of them are quite just manipulative and mean towards each other. I think so too. I had no love for either of them. And there is this one particular scene where they're in this boat that's slowly filling with water and like the implication is that they're gonna drown if they don't figure out a way to get out of it. And I was not fussed either way. I was like, if they drown, I don't care. Good, whatever. Because they were such horrible characters. I had no reason to root for them to get out of that boat other than just indifference. Yeah, because I think one of the issues I have with Fred in general is that Fred is quite often quite a useless and mean character which is part of the reason why we've discussed his toxic masculinity in the past <laughs> as well however in this film what i think is particularly appalling about fred is that the reason that fred wants to keep things so-called loosey-goosey is so that he can chase tail of mm -hmm. rich country club members and you know like feel them up while he's trying to teach them how to play golf which is the most disgusting sentence i think i'm ever gonna have to say in my <laughs> entire life let's hope <laughs> The lowest point of my life so far. <laughs> anyway, what I think is particularly bad here is that Daphne chooses to go play some tennis with some other boys who, you know, all she does is just hug a guy when she wins a set. 
But Fred, who is running past, who Daphne didn't even know was there, sees Daphne platonically hug another man and goes absolutely ape over it. He really does. He's like, you can't be out there playing tennis with other boys. What is she supposed to do? Just avoid all members of the opposite sex for the rest of their relationship? Is she only allowed to play singles and only with Fred? <laughs> How are they supposed to be able to play doubles together? Is he even good at tennis? Look, I don't this is never addressed. So in the boat scene, Fred accuses Daphne of being manipulative because mm -hmm. she played tennis with other men. And yes, I think that Daphne is manipulative in this film and that yeah. she never discusses with Fred what she wants out of the relationship. And she also gets quite shitty and mad at him when he's doing things which he thought that he was allowed to do. Mm -hmm. But that's more of a communication issue as opposed to yeah. being a manipulative, horrible person. Yeah. And Fred never addresses his own issues in the relationship. No. And even after they break up post the boat scene, Fred is just consistently still trying to get Daphne on side. He continues to touch her on her lower back and, you know, like, defend her and stuff mm -hmm. when she's clearly not interested in him. Yes, she is manipulative, but he is overly jealous and possessive of her and just has no respect for her as a person. And I feel like this relationship subplot completely sapped Daphne of any personality or character at all. She just became like this nagging wife archetype. A nagging wife archetype despite not even having the security of being in a relationship exactly. with Fred. Because <laughs> they're in this loosey-goosey relationship as you said and yet she's acting like they've been married 30 years and he's got a bit of a wandering eye. <laughs> yeah, precisely. The other... Well, I'm not sure if you can call it romantic, but the other relationship which attempts to be romantic in the film is the blossoming crush that Shaggy develops on Velma. Exactly, yes. And there are several issues with this. The first is that Shaggy has put Velma on a pedestal which is so cripplingly high that Velma just has no hope of getting down safely. No. So Shaggy ends up trying to take Velma on a date, and Velma is clearly not interested. Velma, despite being possessed by the witch, just really wants to solve the mystery and go home. Yeah, she's the only one who seems genuinely invested in this. But Shaggy insists on taking her on a date, and it's so painfully awkward the entire time. Like, I feel like a lot of the time, first dates are naturally always going to be a bit awkward, mm -hmm. but there was zero chemistry between the two of them. None whatsoever, and that was even before Scooby interrupts and spills salt all over them. Exactly. The salt is perhaps just a foreshadowing about how salty the entire gang is throughout this movie. <laughs> but I think another issue is that I can take Shaggy kind of mooning over Velma. Mm -hmm. It's an interesting new dynamic to introduce to the group, although not one which I think is faithful to original Scooby lore. No. Shaggy only has one love, and that's food. <laughs> And Velma is a lesbian. <laughs> exactly. She's clearly a lesbian. She's even played by Hayley Kiyoko. <laughs> However, I think that this kind of like characterization of Shaggy is inoffensive. And as for Velma, I think that Velma, despite being possessed by a witch for the majority of the film, does more to solve the mystery than anyone else, even though she's the villain that they're trying to uncover. <laughs> that is a sad and true point. All this film really did was cement for me that the gang are nothing without her. She could run her own solo business 
and it would be so much more successful with so much less property damage. And I think that one thing that I kind of question about Shaggy and Velma's relationship as well is that at the penultimate act in the film where they're trying to rescue Velma from being possessed by the witch, Shaggy starts listing the things that Shaggy likes about her. And they're all things that make Velma really helpless. So for example, he says, I like the ruffle of your plaid skirt when you run away from monsters. And I like how you constantly drop your glasses all the time. And both of those things are things that kind of remove Velma's agency. Mm -hmm. He's not in love with Velma because she's smart or because she's capable or because she's brave or and organized or that she's good at science. He loves her because he reminds her of his own failings as a member <laughs> of the gang. And I mean, I think that if you truly love someone, you should love them for their good qualities as well as mm -hmm. their bad ones. Otherwise, why are you with them? Now, if you don't love someone for their strengths as well as their weaknesses, do you just want to save them? I think that's a really good point. And I mean, objectively, Shaggy can't save Velma. That's just no. never going to happen. She's far too smart, strong, and capable to ever need to be rescued by a scrawny little string bean like Shaggy. Yeah. We also want to flag that we have some minor concerns about the age of the two characters yes. in their particular iteration of Scooby-Doo. And that we know from The Mystery Begins that Shaggy has been held back several years and yeah. is likely to be at least 18 years old, whereas Velma is 15. Yeah, that that's pretty dodgy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's not enough to make me really concerned but it's enough to raise the hairs on the back of my neck yeah i see some red flags there like it's never confirmed what velma's age is but considering they've put so much effort into making shaggy at least 18 i feel like if they wanted to reassure the audience about the age difference they could have just added in a throwaway line about velma's age yeah maybe 16 or something which would have been still a bit weird but better than 15 speaking of weird but better than 15 <laughs> let's Let's talk about the relationship that Shaggy and Scooby have in this movie because I also have some concerns about that. Now I don't want to say anything ill of the relationship between a man because Shaggy is 18 <laughs> and his dog because that's a sacred relationship which I don't think anyone else can intrude on. However Shaggy and Scooby have some quite worrying dynamics betwixt the two in this film. <laughs> they sure do. I feel like Scooby comes across as a stilted lover. He does and that Scooby is consistently trying to undermine Shaggy's romantic pursuit of Velma. It's quite heavily implied especially at the end that Scooby is in an unrequited love with like romantic love with Shaggy which is never actually addressed but it is very implicit <laughs> yes and concerning I also think another thing which was a bit of a throwaway line but still concerned me is that at one point when Shaggy is trying to ask for romantic advice about Velma he turns to Scooby and says hey can I talk to you man to man <laughs> and Scooby says sort of <laughs> and as a note you get the exact same response from Fred later where Shaggy says Fred can I talk to you man to man and Fred says uh, sort of which implies that Scooby and Fred are both of similar manliness and potentially similar intelligence <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised if Scooby is more intelligent than Fred yeah at least Scooby knows his place in terms of mm -hmm. you know he never encroaches on Daphne's personal space this is a good point yeah, and I think having touched on the weird relationship between Shaggy and Scooby in this movie, I think the weirdest relationship of all that we should spend 
at least a moment on is the relationship Scooby has with the physics of the real world around him. And that this is something which consistently haunts me throughout the film. <laughs> I woke up in the middle of the night last night and I was like, oh my god, <laughs> Scooby can walk on ceilings. What does this mean? And we've touched on in the first movie, like, is yeah. Scooby even a real dog or is he some sort of cryptid? And the more that I watch this particular iteration of the franchise, the more I am convinced that Scooby is the real lake monster all along. <laughs> I think it would be interesting if Scooby was the ghost of a dog. It would also explain his weird, and that sometimes he's acknowledged to be there and sometimes he is not. That is true. It's like he is not Shaggy's pet, he is haunting Shaggy. And I think that there are multiple points in the film where Scooby himself is haunting the audience. <laughs> yeah. So there's a scene which is repeated twice <laughs> for the needs of absolutely no one, because no one should have even have to have seen it once. But Scooby's eyes ping pong out of his yeah. head. They make the boy boy sound. <laughs> yeah. There's another scene where his eyes turn into dollar signs, which we will be discussing later. There's also multiple points in the film where Scooby's body just does things which are just wrong. He fits into a bowl that is roughly the size of a large fruit bowl. Exactly. And I mean, <laughs> Scooby is supposed to be a great dame. Like, what is up with that? I think as well that it's also worth addressing that Scooby, I think, is supposed to be a metaphor for the audience in this film. Yes. And that throughout the film, Scooby is seen documenting the gang <laughs> on a silver digital camera. There is one instance in the film where they are doing an underwater scuba dive to the cave where Velma is being kept. A scooby dive. <laughs> Sorry, continue. <laughs> Where Scooby is clearly holding an underwater camera that is neon yellow and black. However, in the next scene, he is holding a silver digital camera. Scooby does not have pockets. He is a dog. <laughs> Where is he keeping these multiple cameras and for what purpose? Because I think that the purpose is that Scooby is a stand-in for the voyeuristic audience watching the film. A strong theme of voyeurism is present in this movie. It really is. <laughs> Another theme which I think is quite important in this film but under-discussed is colonialism and oh, how it relates sure. to the movie's villain. Exactly. It is never said explicitly, but the implication is that the witch ghost was a Native American woman whose motivation is that these pilgrims have stolen her land, which I think is very reasonable to be angry about because it's like a real issue that obviously really did happen. However, it's not framed that way. No, and her motivations are never really fleshed out. And I understand that she's a ghost, but... <laughs> I would really appreciate if they did have more of a deep dive mm -hmm. into the character and why she's acting this way. It's also worth noting that she is played by a white woman. Yes. Which is very much not okay. Yeah, not at all. It's whitewashing. She's even a white ghost. <laughs> she's a white ghost and... Like, the villain of the film is more sympathetic than our supposed heroes. I think the true villain of this film is the corporation. Yeah, consumerism. And the capitalist undertones of the film. So the uncle, who's presented as a sympathetic character who owns this country club and is losing profit because of the lake monster terrorising his members, is a almost farcical. <laughs> satire of a wealthy person and that when we first get introduced to him 
he is wearing the most incredible fit that I have ever seen. <laughs> In fact, if there's one thing I have to say which is positively glowing about this film, it is the dedication of the costume designer. <laughs> so I would like to thank them for that. So Daphne's uncle, Thornton Blank V, was wearing a white linen tux, a striped button-up with a popped colour, and a white silk scarf double-looped, which reminded me of a frat boy meeting Jane Austen. <laughs> and I thought that it was incredible, but again, it was just, if you asked me to imagine the bourgeoisie, that is what I picture now. Mm -hmm. And the motivation <laughs> of these frog monsters is to eat the guests, so why are we against that? Like, what, what is my motivation for not wanting the frogs to eat these wealthy people? <laughs> Hashtag eat the rich. <laughs> Like, I say let them eat. Yeah. I also think that it's worth touching on the fact that throughout this film, there's kind of weird motivations for why mm. the gang's doing what they do, and that they get the summer jobs because they cause some property damage yes. the last time they tried to solve the mystery. And the reason why they're trying to solve this mystery is because they want to be able to keep their jobs for the country club. Mm. And I think that this is a comment on holding what are essentially, apart from Shaggy, still children mm -hmm. responsible for something where they did have the best intentions ultimately. And I think, you know, that does raise some issues there about the value of property versus the value of friendship and mystery solving. It was very materialistic. It was very materialistic. Scooby is also constantly using Acme products, which are the same ones that Wiley E. Coyote uses in the Roadrunner cartoons. Mm. And I double-checked this, and it turns out that Acme products are constantly used throughout Warner Brothers movies. So all that did was just remind me that potentially in this universe, Wiley E. Coyote might be suing Acme <laughs> for negligence. I sure hope so. And even at the end of the film, the most on-the-nose corporate decision is that Daphne's uncle recommends that they should incorporate in order to avoid personal liability for the property damage that they leave in the wake of wherever they go. And this is literally the company as a shell in order to protect shareholders. I think as well another point which potentially may have legal repercussions that I want to touch on mm -hmm. is the music. Oh gosh yes. I think that the music in this movie is absolutely incredible, but also I wish I had never heard it. That's a really good way to describe it. Like, I've been humming it all day, but it's made me feel hollow and sad. <laughs> yeah. I think hearing Shaggy rap oh. is going to be one of the formative experiences of my 20s. I think one day when I'm looking down the barrel of the rest of my life and I'm about to cross over the pearly gates, that will be one of the, like noticeable moments in my life that will be reflected back to me when my life flashes before my eyes. Yeah, so there's two clips that we'd like to play you from the two musical numbers in this film. Both musical numbers are over two minutes long and again I'm not sure if that's a good thing or a bad thing. I honestly can't tell. We will leave that to you, the audience, to decide. So here is the first one, which was the jaunty vaudevillian tune, Under the Silver Light of the Moon. Yes, yeah, Under the Light of the Silvery Moon. Oh, you're <laughs> right, I'm sorry. You're Again, Scooby-Doo fan. <laughs> I'm really sorry, I think that I was asleep during this part the first time we tried to watch. <laughs> Honey, I'll croon a tune 
So I just want to say that my first impression of that clip is that Nick Philanthus has an enchanting voice. He does. In the first song, it's particularly grating though. Like, I don't think he does his own voice any justice with that particular style of music. Yeah, I have to say, I really respect that he was able to continue the shaggy voice while mm. also singing. I think that takes an unprecedented level of vocal talent. <laughs> I feel like they completely underutilized having Hailey Kiyoko in the cast, though. Like, why wasn't she singing? Yeah, she never really sings at any point. And the only point where she does kind of sing at least a little bit, she's duetting with Daphne, and mm. Daphne's voice is louder and kind of overshadows Velma. Mm. Much like how Daphne overshadows Velma in terms of, you know, the film itself. Yeah, completely unjustly, I might add. I think one of the things that I respect and fear the most <laughs> about the musical numbers in this film is the absolutely ambitious genre and <laughs> decade crossing throughout. So that jaunty tune that we've just mm -hmm. heard devolves into a punk rock remix of the mm -hmm. exact same song. And I'm not sure if we're allowed to play most of the song or if we could potentially get sued. I'd just like to make a note to Warner Brothers if you're listening. We haven't monetized our podcast, <laughs> no. so we, we make no money off your lovely songs. <laughs> yeah. And also, we think this is fair use, but... I wouldn't know. You're the expert. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I only did company law show, but not copyright law. That elective looked really boring in law school. <laughs> well, I didn't go to law school at all. I went to art school. And yet here we are together doing the Scooby-Doo podcast. <laughs> but I highly recommend that you go away and you listen on YouTube. And we'll mm -hmm. see if we can add a link after this mm -hmm. so that on our Instagram story so that you can go check it out. However, I think that I just don't know what what to think. Mm -hmm. Like, why was this necessary? Why was this a part of the film? How many people did this have to go through for this decision to be made? Because later in the film, at the end, they perform another song. And I do think that the second song is objectively better than oh, the yeah. first. That's the one I've been humming consistently for the last 24 hours. But I think that one's particularly interesting because Scooby-Doo was first released in 1969. Mm -hmm. So it starts off with a 1960s hippie kind of tune, mm. then they go to a 1970s roller disco, then they skip the 80s entirely, unjustly I might add. Tragic. 80s is like one of my favourite genres of music. <laughs> exactly. And go straight into the 90s rap zone. Mm. And here is that rap for you now. <laughs> my name is Shaggy, I like to eat. My name is Scooby, but he got both feet. Me and my homies solve mysteries through cartoons, movies, and tons of DVDs. As old school goes, we're genuine, we've been kicking it since 1969. But Mystery Inc. is far from through, because there's always more adventures. Darn me, So... I hope that you enjoyed that, because I certainly didn't. <laughs> no, and how many times have we had to watch this now? A minimum of five. And I feel I feel like that's five minutes of my life that I'm just never going to get back. I know, I hear that when I was younger I thought every time you smoked you would lose five minutes of your life. 
And I kind of want to go like smoke a cigarette so I can cut that five minutes just short. <laughs> and I've never smoked in my life, but this is my motivation. So I think what I'm gathering from this is this film has driven you to cigarettes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's getting dang close. First of all, I just want to flag that this movie came out in 2010. Mm. I could excuse a rap scene in 2003 at the latest, mm. but 2010... We knew better. We did. We knew better. There is no excuse for this monstrosity, and it should never have been allowed to happen. I just feel as well, one thing that I also want to touch on is the last thing that you see in the film is Scooby-Doo drilling down through the roller roller (laughs) roller skating rink's floor, coming back up and drilling through in another part of the floor, and then taking a selfie on his digital camera. And I just want to say that that sequence kind of justified the rest of the movie for me because it was so bizarre. It incorporated everything that I dislike about this movie and that it was a needless detour from what was actually important to the film. It completely disregarded the laws of physics and it was an unnecessarily outdated moment and that can you even imagine taking a selfie on a digital camera anymore? It's just not easy to do. You can't even see yourself on the screen. It's actually, we went through some tough times in 2010. My digital camera that I own and very rarely use because it is 2020, it's got a little screen that you can flip to the front so you can see yourself, which is very on trend, I guess. But even then, having this convenience, I never would take a selfie on it. If I'm going to bring that camera out, it's not going to be to take a picture of myself drooling through the floor. <laughs> no. It's gonna be to capture important moments like the face you made when you hear that rap for the first time. <laughs> if only I could go back in time. So I think the takeaways from this film for me are that it is just not a good movie. <laughs> so in terms of ranking it on the jinky scale, mm-hmm. what do you think you would give this film? I would give it a 1.5 out of five jinkies what about you well we mentioned in the first episode we did on mystery begins that daffy is very fond of over accessorizing the scarves and in this film there is nary a scarf to be seen but what (laughs) daphne does wear is a large number of headbands and i can't verify that my number is correct because i did fall asleep (laughs) several times but i counted nine headbands Minus one for the one that the lake monster literally ate off her head by putting out his little frog tongue and snapping it up like a little fly. So I want to give this film minus eight jinkies for the number of headbands that Daphne wore, which survived the film. Why do you think you're giving it that score? What justifies that for you? I think that what justifies that for me is that this film just can't even justify its own existence. It makes me so angry that I've now seen this film four times and can actually recall parts of it because all I want to do is just delete this entire thing from my memory. Well, that's fair. My justification for giving it one jinky, I thought it captured the tone of a Scooby-Doo movie a lot better than the first one. In the way that they had the classic running through multiple doors gag and the chase scene kind of thing. But I give it no more jinkies than that because it was terrible. The frogs were scary. And I love frogs. I have a shelf dedicated to frogs. 
yeah, I just found it really upsetting, but I enjoyed watching it more than the first one, because as an art teacher I once had said, if you're gonna make something bad, then you need to make it really bad, because at the least then people will feel something when they see your work. And I felt something, just nothing good. I think that's a fair point. So on that note, you can find us on Instagram at Scooby-Doo's and Don'ts, and very soon on TikTok at Scooby-Doo's and yeah, Don'ts. So look out for that because it will be very exciting. Do you still think we're millennials now, Anna? <laughs> yeah, Anna, we have TikTok now. It is my birthday on Saturday, so next time we record, I will be 23. Older and wiser. <laughs> but not wise enough to stop watching really bad Scooby-Doo movies with me. Never. Thank you to Chris for coming up with our fan name, Jinkies Junkies. We're still playing with it because it is a bit of a tongue twister to say. So if you have any ideas for what we should be calling our fans, slide into the DMs. <laughs> Thank you again for listening to us this week. And we're sorry about the rain that you can hear mm. in the background. It was a bit beyond our control. <laughs> yeah. I mean, unlike Scooby, we just don't control the laws of physics or the water cycle. So <laughs> I thought so you were going to suggest that Scooby controls the weather. <laughs> I mean, he may be able to. We don't know that. I don't know the limit on his abilities. <laughs> and on that note to ponder, we will be seeing you next week. Yeah. Have a sustainable Have day. Have a sustainable day. <laughs>